Father, we do simply lay aside all our burdens and we lay aside everything that's earthly so that we can seek you in heaven. Uh, you dwell in heaven and you've connected us to yourself through your spirit and you speak to us through your word and we ask that you would speak wonderful things, that you would confront what needs to be confronted and you would encourage which, what is uh, down and, and discouraged. And I pray that you would do the ministry of a good shepherd in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds today. Help us to think the way you do and help us to love people with your love and with your heart. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Jonah chapter 4, the title of today's sermon is The Meltdown of a Blind Prophet. The Meltdown of a Blind Prophet. So we're going to briefly reset the story so far. Jonah is a Jewish prophet, and he was called to go on a mission from God. So he was on, he's called to go on a mission to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, which was the greatest enemy of his people. Assyria had been waging war and doing terrorist uh, activities against the nation of Israel for almost hundreds of years that by this point, and Assyria had been growing stronger and stronger. Israel was afraid of them. The people hated them. They all knew someone that had been murdered by these Assyrians. And in the capital city of Assyria was Nineveh. It was about 150,000 people. And God said, I want you to go there. I want you to preach to them. And so Jonah first rebelled against this calling, of course. He got on a ship headed to Tarshish, which is the opposite way, the opposite end of the world. But through a whale of a tail, Jonah ends up repenting and deciding to obey God's will after all and go to Nineveh. So he shows up in Nineveh after a long journey, and he says five words to them. In English, it is, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. I'm probably laughing, probably excited to share such a message of uh, destruction because he hated them. And he probably didn't think he was going to get out of there alive. So he's just probably rubbing it in. But miracle of miracles, the whole city repents of their evil deeds and stops doing all their violence at his terrible preaching. Yes, he was a terrible preacher. But the most successful short-term mission trip of all time. He walks in, doesn't even get one day into the city, and he just says five words, and the entire city repents. You see, God didn't need Jonah's wisdom to get his job accomplished, to get his mission accomplished. He didn't need Jonah's plans. He didn't need anything from Jonah except obedience. He chose Jonah and he just wanted Jonah to be the voice, be the vessel that he used. Why? Well, I don't know. God chose Jonah. I think as we get through this, God took Jonah on this journey. God, I think, opens Jonah's eyes. I think Jonah wrote this book after Jonah was transformed, after Jonah met the living God and learned so many lessons on this journey and this trip. He doesn't tell us specifically all that happened to him afterwards, and so we don't know if he even wrote this book. Maybe it was someone writing about him. But I think it was him, 
And I think that he wrote it in a way to help us help it get through to our hard hearts what he went through. And, and he knows that God will take care of speaking to us and transforming us. I think Jonah is actually a really great guy by the time uh, you know he dies. I think, I think he learns these lessons. Maybe it's just hopeful thinking, but um, I, this is a, such a remarkable book. I think that he actually was um, uh, the author of it. So again, this is the most successful missionary journey uh, that we ever have recorded in history. And God didn't need any planning. He didn't need money. He just needed his guy surrendered to his will. But is that the lesson of this book? Just obey God and everything will be all right. Just keep the Ten Commandments. Keep the Ten Commandments. Just do that. Just do everything God says. Just do what's right, and that's what God is looking for. Well, guys, friends, if that was the lesson of this book, then this book would end in chapter 3. That would be the lesson if it ended in chapter 3. But that's not the lesson. And it doesn't end in chapter 3. It has a whole other chapter, chapter 4. And the real lessons of this book are contained in chapter 4. So let's dive in and see why this book matters to you and to me in Denver, Colorado, or wherever you're listening or watching in 2021 or whenever you're watching this. So let's begin. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. In Hebrew, it uses the word anger two or three times in this one sentence to emphasize how angry Jonah was. Um, but if we back up just a moment, this is a surprising, somewhat shocking verse. Why would Jonah, a servant of God, a minister of God, a prophet of God, why would Jonah be angry that his mission was successful? It seems to me like if you did what God wanted and God's result happened, that you wouldn't be angry. But this is the real heart of this book, the real lesson, okay? The whole reason this book was written, it wasn't written to teach us about whales and how to survive in a whale's stomach. And it wasn't written to teach us lessons about Nineveh or how to preach. <laughs> Jonah was a terrible preacher. The real lesson of this, and the first one that we're going to really hit on right now, is that Jonah wasn't on the same mission as God in his heart. On the outside, it might have looked like Jonah was obeying God, and he was obeying God technically, if you think about the words that he said. But in his heart, Jonah was far from God. Jonah was doing what God said on the outside, but his heart was not on board. He had not bought in and he had not surrendered to God's will. He did not have the same heart as his God. He was God's representative without really representing God. Jonah, in this moment, is the antitype, another antitype of Jesus. Jesus is God's perfect representative. If you ever want to know what God thinks about something, you talk to Jesus, you look at Jesus, you think about Jesus, 
you seek Jesus. If you want to know God, you seek Jesus. If you want to experience God, you experience Jesus. It's all He is God's perfect representative. He is God in a language that we can understand, humanity. That's what Jesus is. He is our connection with God. And this, Jonah's failure to represent God in a in a loving, compassionate way, it only highlights how wonderful Jesus is. Because Jesus always does what God wants and does it with the same spirit of God, the same heart as God. We call that the Holy Spirit. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, filled and baptized and overflowing with the Holy Spirit, which means everything he did, he did it the same way and with the same power and energy and life that God does it because he was filled with God. He was God. And as the church today, this is how we should do ministry as well. It's how we should do family and how we should do work and how we should do all of life by the power and the heart of the Holy Spirit. God has promised and gifted every one of you. Once you turn to Jesus and believe upon him, put your hope in him, he has given you this gift of the Holy Spirit where you can um, have his heart. As you spend time with him, you will start to be overflowed with his heart. And you will start to act like him, speak like him, and think like him. All by the power of, and supply of the Holy Spirit. Doing God's work without the same heart or spirit as God will only frustrate you and burn you out. Guys, this is so vital. I see this so often in ministry, in families, in marriages, in parents. When we are are trying to do things our way and without God's Spirit, it is so frustrating. And, and you can kind of self-assess and say, am I frustrated right now? Am I burnt out right now in my ministry, in my family, in my work? There is a supply. There is a Spirit available to you through communion with Jesus, through spending time with Him, surrendering to His will, connecting with Him with humility and faith. He will encourage and supply and strengthen all that are weak, all that are weary, and all that are heavy laden. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest and I will empower you to take my yoke upon you and I'll be the strength that you need in your life. You know, this is, this is so common. Uh, it's like you people being doing ministry in their own strength, doing marriage in their own strength, doing parenting, it's like trying to push a truck that's out of gas uphill. And, and we're like, man, I am giving it my all in this ministry. I am giving my marriage everything I have. I'm, I'm giving parenting, I'm giving my job everything. And it just feels like I'm getting nowhere. That's the point. We weren't designed to get anywhere on our own. The way God has worked this out is that we come to him and his spirit does the work that we need to get done in ministry, family, marriage, work, all those things. God says, do it with me. Or maybe it's like trying to get a car out 
when it's stuck in the snow. Last week, we got a lot of snow. Two weeks ago, we got a ton of snow. And I had to push out a couple cars when they were stuck. And man, it is difficult with little strength to push something that is so heavy. And maybe that's what our life feels like right now. Maybe that's what your ministry feels like. Maybe that's what, you know, loving people that are unlovable and difficult to love. Maybe it feels like you're trying to get a car that's stuck in the snow out of the snow. Every time we go up to the mountains to go skiing, I tend to get my van stuck in the snow. And it's embarrassing and I hate it. And I get friends to help me push it out. <laughs> and my boys usually help me, right guys? That's right. <laughs> um, what this teaches us is that God's work must be done God's way with his power. God has given you work to do in this life. Your family, your ministry, your calling, your work, your, your, your parenting, all of these things. God has given you specific work to do in this life, but it needs to be done his way. What is that way? Well, Jonah has not soaked in God's love and grace himself. He has a, a beginning knowledge of that, but he hasn't soaked in it. He hasn't really, really connected with God's love and grace himself. He's kind of keeping God at arm's length. He thinks he can serve God and still hold on to his pride. And he can feel that he is better than other people. That's the symptom of his pride. That's how we know. That's the scent of his pride. Is that he feels like he's better than other people. He thinks he can fulfill God's requirements on the outside without having to consider God's heart on the inside of his own life. So why does Joni, Jonah, <laughs> Joni, why does Jonah feel like he's better than other people? Well, because of, his, because of his pride and his familiarity, right? He was born in Israel, so he has a long-standing connection with God. He's been told time after time, we are God's people. So he has this identity that's been told to him that I don't know if he's ever really personally connected with. He sees all these other people, all the pagans, he sees their sin and idolatry. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, when he says, all those who, have, who claim on or hold on to idols, they forsake their own mercy or grace. And, and so he really does see that idolatry is a problem, but he only sees it in the other people. He knows that the law is God's standard, and he sees that all these pagans are obviously not measuring up to God's standards, and they deliberately break it. They don't care if they're breaking God's laws. So... They should be judged, is what he thinks. They should rightly be judged. So he perceives their sin and idolatry. But check this out. He sees all of their sin as being worse than his sin. He thinks their sin is worse than his sin. But Jonah is actually blind to his own sin. He is blind to his own sin. I had a blind friend, and one year for Christmas, I gave him a cheese grater as a gift. And he got back to me a week later, and he told me 
that it was the most violent book he ever read. <laughs> One more. Do you know why blind people don't skydive? Because it scares their dogs too much. You're welcome. You're all welcome. There's much more to look forward to of that. Why is Jonah blind? How did this happen? The answer is Jonah has not been reading the law to himself. He has not been letting the law do its work. Do you guys remember what happens when we read the law? We've learned this many times. But when we read the law, Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So when we read the law, when we read about God's commandments, God's standards, all these wonderful things that God has written about what a, a, a human being should do and should be and should look like, all these wonderfully perfect laws that we all fail, what it does is it shows us our failure, it shows us our sin. It's not comfortable, it's not easy, it's not nice to be told that you have failed to measure up, but that's exactly what reading the law does, and that's what Jonah has not been doing, and so Jonah is right now blind to his own sin. And that's exactly what happens to us, is that we don't have the knowledge of our sin. We're not aware of how sinful we are when we neglect to look at, to let the law do its work. The law does good things. It makes us aware of our sin, but... After we're aware of our sin, what is the purpose of the law? It's served its purpose. Its purpose is done because it cannot transform you. All it can do is tell you you're a sinner. It's like a friend that says, you smell, you have bad breath, you stink. And that's it. They don't give you a Tic Tac. They don't offer to help you brush your teeth. They don't do anything to help you. They just inform you that you don't measure up. That's what the law does. It has an important job because if we didn't realize that we were sinners, we wouldn't cry out for a savior. But that's what the law does. It helps us to cry out for a savior because it helps us to know that we are sinners. Jonah, he is blissfully unaware of his own brokenness, his own sin. Being aware of how messed up you are is a plus in the kingdom of God. It's a positive thing to be aware that you have failed to measure up. That's why we confess our sins to the Lord and to one another. When we fail, it is, it's, it's hard. It's difficult to admit that you have failed, that you have succumbed to a temptation, that you have uh, not acted the way you were supposed to act. But the way to get through that is to confess it, become aware of it, and not try to hide it or cover up. God is not intimidated or put off by our brokenness, by our failures, or by our sin. He's not. But prideful arrogance is a different story. God is opposed to that. And he tells us so in James 4, 6. I give grace to the humble, but I oppose the proud, God says. He gives grace and mercy to the humble, those who admit their sin and their, their brokenness, but to the proudful, those who say, I don't have a problem like Jonah here. 
God opposes them. He, he holds them out. He says, you cannot get close to me. You cannot receive my goodness, my love, my mercy, my grace. I have to hold you away from those things because of your pride. Because you won't admit that you need them. That's how it works with the Lord. Now Jonah lets us in on an argument that he's been having with the Lord, with God for a long, long time. Look what it says here. So we prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled, previously fled to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? God... I knew this was going to happen, and I am not happy. That's what Jonah's saying. Jonah is so angry that he wants to die. He wants God to kill him. And Jonah's reason? God, they only changed because they're scared of you, not because they earned it. They got your grace, they got your mercy, and they didn't earn it. They don't deserve it. They don't really know you, God. You want people to earn it, right, God? That's what Jonah's saying. In Jonah's mind and in Jonah's heart, he is accepted by God because of where, who he, he, where he was born, who he is, and what he's done or not done. Jonah really believes that he has earned God's grace. And God's mercy. Again, my opinion is that I think Jonah is so open and transparent about his failures here because he repents after this book, the story of this book. And this book is the testimony of where he was at. And he's really letting us in on the deep levels of, of his depravity that he was really arguing with God. And he really believed he deserved God's grace and mercy, and the people of Nineveh did not. Jonah claims to know God here. He says, I know you, right? But did he? He says, I know you, that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah is actually quoting or kind of sub-quote, semi-quoting uh, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And he thinks he's he thinks he knows God's word. He thinks he's uh, um, uh, he thinks he knows God himself. He thinks he knows how God describes himself. And Jonah is using God's word against him, against God. He's claiming that God is being inconsistent with what he's claimed to be. He's twisting the meaning of this scripture by taking things out of context. Does that remind you of somebody? How about Satan in the Garden of Eden twisting God's word? Or how about Satan in the desert taking incomplete quotations out of God's word if, uh, when he was talking, tempting Jesus in the desert? 
How does Jonah mess this up? How does Jonah mess up this quote? Well, he doesn't let the word of God speak and he doesn't let the word of God, he doesn't quote it completely. He takes things out of context. He cuts it out off short. He doesn't get the full picture. He doesn't let it sink in to his heart. He leaves out one big part of God's character, which is God's judgment. And that's where Jonah's problem comes in, is he he thinks God is just all nice and never just. As you will see, Jonah doesn't really know God. He doesn't take God at his word and trust him. God describes his merciful traits and his judgment, but Jonah just leaves that part out. God says he is both merciful and just. And Jonah's basically calling God a liar, saying God really only shows his mercy but never punishes the wicked. And for Jonah, that's breaking Jonah's heart. He's angry about it. He's devastated. He's, he's really angry, as we've seen. How can God be both merciful and righteous or just or the judge at the same time? That's a very valid question and a question that many people today in our city, in our culture, in our communities, many people have that same question. How can God be good and merciful but also send people to hell? Also judge sin, righteously judge sin. And today it's more of on the side of, uh, I don't know if God is qualified to judge sin because I'm not sure he has the right standards, which is obviously false and, and not the right way to think. Back here, it's, I don't know if anyone could ever earn God's grace or mercy and everyone should probably go to hell. Well, let's see how Jonah is kind of pulling this description from Exodus 34. So let's read Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before uh, him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We studied this before when we studied the book of Exodus. And this clearly describes God's wonderful attributes. And it's God describing himself, so we should pay attention and we should look and, and, and study what God says about himself. So just briefly, he says, I'm merciful, which means he's full of compassion, tenderly pitiful. He, he really loves to show mercy. He's full of mercy. And it says he's gracious, which means that God's heart's desire is to supply what we could never supply for ourselves, all that we could ever need or want through his son Jesus. That's what it means that he's gracious. He wants to supply what we need. God never wants or desires us to show him what we can do or impress him. His heart is repulsed by pride, and because that pride keeps his children from receiving his free gifts of grace. Um, the next word it says when he describes himself is long-suffering. He's patient, not in a hurry. He's not stressed out. He's willing to endure with immaturity, failure, and brokenness. He is slow to anger, which is the opposite of Jonah, right? Um, God says here that he's abounding in goodness, 
Think of a cup that's overflowing and it's all yours. The goodness of God in Psalm 23, it ends by saying, surely the goodness and mercy of God shall pursue me all the days of my life. That means it will hunt you down. God is hunting you down to show you goodness. He wants to bless you. It says he's abounding also in truth. Not only abounding in goodness, but abounding in truth. There's nothing uncertain or unknown with him. He knows the truth about who we are and what we've done. He is abounding in truth. He knows everything. He's in total control. It says he keeps mercy for thousands. That means he does not run out of mercy. Even if there's 150,000 people that need mercy like Nineveh. You can't be too bad for his mercy. He has enough. He can always be merciful. It says he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. You can't do something that he can't forgive. Except for rejecting his love and grace. That's something we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always working and trying to, uh, to give us God's grace, God's mercy. And when we refuse to believe that God is who he said he is, that God wants to do these things for us, when we refuse to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and the Bible says that is the unforgivable sin. God is, has grace for everything, and mercy, he can forgive everything, except if someone rejects the work of his son on the cross. The, that is all of his goodness wrapped up in, a, in something that we can accept or reject. Um, now it says in this scripture that he is by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This means that if someone rejects God's free grace, as described above, all the different things we just read, that God can't forget it, that that pride blocks his work in their life. You can't think that you can reject such a free offer of life and grace and forgiveness in exchange for all that the world offers and whatever you want to do in your life and not experience consequences, God says. It's, I can't forgive that. It will be judged, God promises. And he will fulfill that role of judge and punisher if he has to. But it says, and for all have sinned, God must punish someone for that sin. But it says he will, he will visit that sin upon the children's, uh, you know, uh, children's children and all the grandchildren and all that, that doesn't mean that he's going to punish them for their father's sin. It means that God will keep giving each generation their own chance and he will keep offering each generation a chance to receive him and each generation he will visit them. He's not going to just abandon them uh, to, to the fate of their fathers and their grandfathers. So for all the people that do sin... God has to visit that sin. That means God will keep trying to reach those people year after year after year. And on, in the same topic, Jesus visited us when we were completely lost in sin. When we were that generation that our fathers had sinned and, and maybe you know, who knows where we were. 
Jesus visited us, and he still offers us uh, his grace, God's love, and God's mercy. Jonah, what, what his problem here in these four verses that we've read is that he's creating a simplistic image of God where God just loves anybody and he never judges evil. And so Jonah doesn't really know God very deeply or accurately. God's goodness is better than you could ever imagine, even better than Jonah saying. His goodness is even gooder, right? But his holiness is also more intense than you ever dared to consider. And this is complex, right? This is not just a simple thing. And it takes time to consider and explain and wrestle and dig down. And it's kind of something you have to do in your heart. But anything worth exploring is difficult to traverse. We have to, we have to consider this and let God speak to us about both his goodness and his justice his righteousness and holiness. But Jonah hasn't done that, and so Jonah wants to die. His own misunderstanding God is his key problem. Knowing God is the path to peace for all people. It really is. And Jonah, he's just showing that his misunderstanding, his misknowing God is creating a big problem in his own life. God highlights his own mercy for Jonah, and Jonah isn't having it, right? You know, for the God that Jonah thinks he knows gives mercy to those people who don't deserve it, and Jonah thinks that he deserves it more than those people. Some people today are very concerned about righteousness, doing the right thing. And Jonah would say, yeah, that's, that's what we need, right? That's how we deserve, that's how we know that we deserve God's mercy and grace, right? When we're doing the right thing, hey, God's going to have mercy and grace on me because I started tithing, because I started going to church, because I started reading my Bible. That's how we deserve and earn God's grace, right? No, guys, no, no. Many people have forgotten that the world that they're so angry at for being unrighteous and, and wicked are the very ones that need to hear about God's mercy and grace with his judgment, yes. They need to hear about all of it. We have to preach both God's grace and God's law in this world, God's judgment. What do I mean by that? I don't mean go stand on the corner and saying, you all are going to hell. I mean, when we preach, we preach, Jesus was judged for you. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we have broken God's laws. But Jesus was judged as your substitute on the cross. And that is how we preach about God's judgment today. And yes, if you reject Christ, you will have to face that judgment on your own, but God in this day is offering you his love and grace and unlimited mercy and forgiveness because God has already judged Jesus as guilty for us. God has offered you his mercy through Jesus. We don't preach, stop sinning and everything will be all right. Stop sinning, like, like Jonah did. Jonah gave a... Uh, false message to these people, really. 
It's an oversimplification of the truth. Jonah should have gone further when he was preaching to these people, right? He should have pastored this city into a covenant relationship with God, teaching them about God's uh, wonderful love and how he could, uh, how sacrifice would play into their forgiveness of sins. Jonah should have pastored them, but he did not. We preach Jesus was judged for your sin and accept his mercy and grace. Then turn away from your sin to Jesus. Follow him. God takes care of the sinning by changing our nature from the inside out. That is pastoring. That's the work that we do as a church with people in this world. So Jonah says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? We are watching Jonah crash right now. He is crashing, right? He is he's crashing just like anyone who has a misunderstanding of God. And God is kind of letting him, and he's, he's kind of just showing him a mirror and saying, Jonah, is it right Jonah still thinks that the mercy and grace that God has shown him is earned. Someone has to deserve it. We have to show our worthiness. That's the worldview that Jonah has. And the Lord said, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, stop looking at them and look at you. Should you really be angry about my mercy and grace being freely given, Jonah, May I remind you that you were in a fish, that you were dying, and I gave you free mercy and grace? Jonah, should you be angry? God asked Jonah to look at a mirror. And what does he see? Well, I think he saw so much that he wrote this book to try to show us the lessons that he learned through his pain and his crashing. God will go deeper with Jonah through the rest of this chapter that we're going to study um, next. We'll probably do an Easter service next week, but God's going to go deeper with Jonah. And the th here's the thing, and this is what we're going to end on real simply. God will go deeper with you than you feel comfortable going. But he uses your crash, he uses your pain always to set us free. Jonah is captive to his own perspective and pride and sin. He's, he's stuck in it. But God loves him. And, and God says, I got a plan to set you free, but it's going to involve some major, difficult, painful, deep surgery. And God is willing to go there with Jonah. So just know that when, when we are broken, when we have been, uh, you know, when our sin has been exposed, when we are struggling and when we're, um, not, when we're seeing the world but we're not seeing maybe God's love or we're not seeing, we're seeing the unfairness that we think we, you know, see in the world and we're struggling with that, that God wants to take us there and he wants to, have us process through his free grace. He wants us to learn humility. And he wants us, like Jonah, to learn his heart and his love. 
And, and the first part of that is he shows up in me and he says, is it right for you to be angry? I know that you've suffered and you've gone through a lot of terrible things. But I have forgiven you freely of all things. Many years later, Jesus comes and, and he's telling a parable about someone who was forgiven of a certain amount. We'll say a thousand bucks. He was in jail and he was forgiven of that amount. But he goes uh, out after he's forgiven and he, and he starts you know, beating his friends and people that owed him 10 bucks. And he treats them um, unfairly. And he treats them with contempt and prideful. And he says, you're going to pay me everything you owe me. And the, the master that forgave him his great, great, great amount freely, just out of love, brought him in and said, hey, you have missed my grace and love and my mercy. You have missed out on it. You, you don't know who I am or what I've done. And that is the only way. That's the mirror being held up to us saying, can we love people how God has loved us? Can we offer them the love and forgiveness and mercy that God has freely offered us? That's what we need to consider this week. And I pray that God um, takes us deeper than we've ever gone before in our fellowship and communion and connection with him. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for this book of Jonah. And we ask that you would um, use it powerfully in our lives. Help us to be humble when dealing with this world. Help us to be full of, of faith and have confidence in what you have done, Jesus, for us and for every sinner in this world. And I pray that you give us boldness and more opportunities to share your gospel with every person that we meet this, this week. Give us boldness, Lord. Help us to see your power and grace and love in our lives, in our families, in our work, in all our community this week. And we pray that you would guide and lead our church and that we would be a good representative and representation of you and, and uh, who you really are. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys, and I hope to see you soon.